When I got in the truck, I had a conversation with Mr. MacArthur about a serial killer being at large. I was saying it possibly could be an Uber driver. I was just throwing out all these scenarios and now I'm just thinking back what, how, what was going through his head while I was like going off about a serial killer when I'm sitting next to an alleged serial killer. His name is Sean Cribben, and the encounter that he's describing with Bruce MacArthur got to his apartment, and it involved an agreement about bondage and submission, and Sean Cribben ended up taking some drugs. He ended up unconscious, and what he learned from the police was when they arrested and went to Bruce MacArthur's apartment, they found pictures of Sean Cribben in what they term the kill position with the murder weapon on his throat. He knew he was the lucky one. He learned of bodies and killings and buried in plant pots and sat in a courtroom and watched Bruce MacArthur plead to those killings. It's drama. And it's trauma, and you do feel lucky, as he called himself at the time. However, we're going to catch up and hear Sean Cribben's story. He has a documentary about this, Was I Next, the Sean Cribben story. He is joining us live tonight. Sean Cribben, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Arlene, to hear your voice. I also want to introduce Sean Prue, who's a journalist and a broadcaster and publisher of the thegayguidenetwork.com. Sean and I brought this story to Global News, and we were the first to interview Sean about his experience. And it's great to have Sean uh, with me as we talk to Sean this evening. Sean Prue. Nice, well, nice to be with you. Thank you. I'll never forget that kill position term as long as I live. It's true. I remember Sean Cribben being in your apartment and asking you about the story and when you explained mm. it. Sean, first of all, before we go into any of the other details, how are you and how is this story, how has it been affecting your life? Um, it's, it's become something that will, will be with me forever. Um, I thought I was getting over it, but I've come recently to um, have a resurgence of some trauma uh, symptoms. And um, I'm under the medical team's supervision uh, to work through them, and I know I will, but that doesn't mean that it won't come up again. So I'm trying to prepare myself for this to be an ongoing issue from time to time. Sean, when we talked to you, you did say you felt like the lucky one. You knew what had happened. But over time, as I said before we welcomed you on the show, I just can't imagine how you go back to that moment, being in the apartment, what the police told you. Do you think often of how you felt when the police first told you about that kill position? Yeah, it's it's a horrific thing that comes to mind probably um, on a daily basis, if not um, weekly. Uh, there were times when I was dealing with it and it would be away from my thoughts for quite a while but um it comes back in your nightmares uh which you can't control there's um it's it's just it's part of me but it's not going to define me if i can help it 
Yeah, no. And and that's that's what you're working on. Sean, how would you describe yourself now? How has this changed you? Well, you gotta remember like the event itself and the aftermath, the the criticism of uh, the public uh, saying, debating whether that I deserve to die, that stuff really stripped away my identity, stripped away my confidence. Like so much of me was erased at that moment. And I've been trying to get that back and I was doing very well, but then I've had a setback and it, it might have to do with the release of uh, the documentary and there's a book coming out and then another film mm-hmm. um, that relate to me. And it's, um, it's the, the term is called spotlight syndrome. So by being brought into the spotlight again, it's actually part of it has to do with in 2019, I also had a stroke, <clears throat> excuse me. And it took away that, that filter off my inner critic. Mm-hmm. So now my inner critic I projected onto, so I actually hear criticism of myself 24 hours a day, pretty much. Well, that's, that's Sean, something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, we know that, and, and it speaks so highly to the, the trauma that you have experienced. You became talked about and vilified online, and we knew that was going to happen. People saying you deserved it for being promiscuous or using drugs or whatever. But you began to get paranoid and hear voices vilifying you at that one point, didn't you? And, and there was only one way to make it stop um, for you, you thought. Yeah, like it, it's, um, I, it almost got to the point where my only option appeared to be uh, suicide uh, to make the voices stop because I had a trifecta of events. I had the PTSD moment, the trauma, um, and then I had the physical stroke, which took off the filter. So I can't, everyone has an inner critic in them, in them, but we generally don't hear it because we, that part of the brain keeps it suppressed, but mine is off and it projects it onto what would be regular noises. Like you hear a com- people talking, but you can't make out what they're saying. But it, my my inner critic throws a conversation about me, and that has to do with the spotlight syndrome. So the three things coming together created the perfect storm. Sean, let me ask you, and there are very few people who have gone through what you've gone through. You know that. I mean, this is, you're a survivor. Is that a problem? Or, you know, when we first talked about this and you had not been in the spotlight yet. You were first telling that story again. You use those words. I'm the lucky one. Do you still feel that way? I still feel I'm the lucky one. And that's part of what keeps me going is because I was given a gift of life by things lining up the way they did that day. And it would be for me to actually commit suicide because I'm having problems dealing with it at a particular moment would be the most selfish thing I could do. And I know that. Um, not only to the victims, but to my, my family and, and the people who stood by me. Like, it would be ridiculous. Um, so I, I'm not to say I'm suicidal all the time, but I, it has gotten me to think that way a couple of times. But I still feel lucky, yes. You are lucky. You're lucky and you're traumatized. What do people say, finally? We're almost about to go to break here, but I, 
And we're going to have you back. And for our audience, we're going to stick with this and come back with another segment. Sean, when you tell people who you are and what you went through, what happens? What goes through your mind? What do they ask you? What do they say? And how does it, how is it different from before? Um, well, they want to know all the details, and I'm and I'm perfectly fine talking about it. Uh, that's that's not what uh, traumatizes me. It's when I get and I do get uh, reactions that are negative. Like, oh, but you were unconscious, so you didn't really know it happened. So why are you making such a big fuss? I've gotten that. Like, um, people are, can be really awful, and they're not me they're not the individual if it was someone else going through a traumatic event they have to learn to just uh keep that stuff to themselves <laughs> really it doesn't help the person in pain at all no it it clearly doesn't and, and you're finding that out uh, sean Cribben, i i want to ask you as you are dealing with all these things and we can we can only try to imagine how you feel and we can hear it in your voice. It's, it's really something to be burdened with. Although I keep going back to the luckiness aspect of it, but I want to bring up the aspect of the police because we talked to you about this when you first told the story and the police and your dealings with them. And some members of the gay community have been quite critical, as you know, because they were reporting and worried there was a serial killer. You spoke to the serial killer in his vehicle about the serial killer. You didn't know it was him, but you knew that there was talk in the village that men were disappearing here. Sean, how do you feel about what is what happened with the police, how they treated you, and how maybe they could improve? Um, well, the civil inquiry um, that was put uh, put together by uh, Judge uh, Gloria Epstein is very thorough. It's four volumes, um, and it, it marked 152 um, things that the police did wrong during the investigation. And um, there were some things wrong in the way I was handled, but that was not who was directly handling me. The people who directly handled me handled me with care. So as much as, yeah, I was approached by a lawyer that said I could sue for a certain amount of money and most likely win. Um, but for me, it was like, I still stand behind the fact that they treated, I can only speak for myself. They treated me with dignity and respect. But there's also that side. They were covering up some mistakes, so they um, didn't want me on public record at all. They actually tried to kill that original story. Um, Ours, yeah. Yeah, which was the top man going to um, the reporter from um, Global and asking her to not run it. But it did run, Sean. It did run. I I know Sean Pru uh, wants to jump in here as we just try to follow this incredible story of how this is is just hung on you, Sean. I want to ask you what you learned, Sean, about yourself from this whole experience. And, you know, as you as you go about making the documentary that you've made, um, has this defined your life for you? Sorry, see the last part. I just didn't hear. I say, has this just has this defined your life 
for you. You know, you've been making a documentary. You've got other projects on the go. I wonder what you learned about yourself along this journey that you're having. And, and it, has this become who you are? Will you be always known for this having the survivor, to you? Yeah. The survivor. Yeah, I, and do you like that? Well, or are you comfortable with that? Well, my, my goal is to go to Thriver. Like, um, I'm not quite there yet. And these projects that I worked on, they were very good in, in many ways in terms of me dealing with the trauma and giving me a voice, which it's, it's up to me to use that platform and that voice to do better things. So I'm starting a, a foundation, a, ch- a charitable foundation um, for uh, police against Internet predators. I'm focusing on children, um, even though I was an adult. It's um, just because my career was dedicated to children. So I felt like that was more me. Um, but it's up. So I don't want to be defined by just this, but that's my platform to do better things by it. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Shauna, I I, want to ask you about strangers. You know, I've talked to people who are almost victims and they say they, they're, they're very careful and paranoid and they listen to themselves. They listen to fear and they listen to maybe what, things that they should have paid attention to. You met with a stranger. How do you feel about strangers now? Um, well, I practice, um, I, I always did practice some caution, but uh, you don't think it's going to happen to you. So I was a little bit of an invincibility complex, um, uh, which is goes along with most young people. But uh, I, I preach about uh, internet safety and hooking up now and certain precautions people should take myself. Um, yes, I do still do it, but um, I keep my partner informed always before, <laughs> not like that day. I told I was planning to tell him after and there would have been no after if he was successful. So there with modern day devices, there's no reason you cannot send a screenshot of the profile or take a picture of the person when you get there. Waste, it might not save your life, but at least it will get them caught so it won't happen to someone else like, along the way. Like, or because if we, if we operate on fear and not live our lives, that's not fair either. We have to, there's got to be a balance. The world's getting to be a harder and harsher place. So, we can't let the fear overrule living. Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> totally it makes does. total sense. Sean, I, I wanted to just ask you, what, what do you want people to know about you? You know, people have heard your story. They've seen you. They've got opinions about you. Yeah, we talked about you being vilified before. What do you want people to know about who you are? Well, the, the fact of the matter is, is, if they go see the documentary, that's what I did with that. Is I, I took I put the human side. My mother's in there. Um, my school friends are talking about me, like how I was. And I'm a good person. I'm a kind person. I go out of my way not to cause harm to anyone, both emotionally and physically. Um, so they got to look at what they're criticizing. Does it affect them? Am I a threat to them? No, if they don't like what I'm doing, they don't have to follow my behavior. Like they don't have to follow me. They just look the other way. Like, don't don't take it on as 
uh, their disapproval is, um, and turn it in because it turns into a hate towards me. And that's not that's not fair because they don't know me. No, Sean, you know, you're all, all that stuff and you're telling us how you feel and what people say and how it affects you. And we all can relate to that. Nobody likes it, especially in the social media age. They can go for you. But what would you like to say to Bruce MacArthur? I mean, you sat in a car with him. You arranged a, a ronde, a sexual rendezvous with him. And then the next thing you know, all this stuff has happened. You've got to live with the fact of the kill position and the police, what they told you and what he actually did. Do you ever say, I, I, I'd love to talk to him? And if you would, what would you say to him? Well, I was given the opportunity to submit some questions to him. Um, which he did not answer, but at least um, the police gave me that chance. I'm just, what I really want to know is why. Like, obviously, he's a psychopath, so there's, um, he's a sexual sadist, um, and all those things, those make sense, but I just don't understand what was going on in his brain that snapped to make him do that. That's not going to help anyone, but it's just to... He's not saying anything. He's not talking to inmates. He's not talking to other, um, to the guards. He's just walking around smiling because I get reports on everything uh, in regards to him. So and they tell that. you what he's doing, do they? Yeah, yeah like they tell me um, they're actually con- a little bit concerned about um, him because they don't know what's going on in his head. Well, well yeah. That's that's not surprising. That is not surprising. Well, it was here. We are all back together again. I don't. I, I know Sean Prue and I will never forget sitting in your apartment that day and hearing what we we didn't know where we were going to go, and we all went there. Right, Sean? It was really emotional for us. It was a huge day. It was unforgettable. It was. And Sean, you know, five years ago. Yeah, five years ago, and here you are telling this story. Um, I know you're going to go from survivor to thriver, Sean. I know you are. And thank you so much for being so brave to share this story with us tonight, and Sean and I together. And and also, uh, congratulations on your documentary, Was I Next? The Sean Cribbins Story. Thank you kindly. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. And Sean, Sean Prue, great to have you back together, team back together again as we discuss this. I'm Arlene Bynum. This is On Point.